0: that he aimed to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I hope that, um, that I would do the same, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. Um, as we begin, let me begin with a, a story. I remember being a boy, 10 or 11 years old. I remember waking up in the middle of the night with sharp pain in my side. Very clear memory of waking my parents up and seeing, even though I had woken them up in the middle of the night, seeing that they were genuinely concerned for me. I remember my father driving me uh, to the emergency room and sitting with me all night long as the doctors and nurses ran tests. I remember him showing genuine concern when the doctor ordered a CT scan to check for appendicitis, and he had great concern for me that perhaps I would need emergency surgery. I remember him trying to encourage me as I had to drink that disgusting contrast fluid. And I remember him being patient with me as the first scan didn't work, having to drink more fluid and then a second scan. And I remember at the end of that long night in the emergency room, when all of the tests turned up nothing, I remember him being genuinely relieved. He wasn't frustrated with me for waking him up and causing him to lose a night's sleep. He wasn't angry with me for wasting his time. He was genuinely relieved that his son was well, and in no immediate danger. And I remember crawling into the back of the car as the sun was coming up, and my dad driving me home. I remember falling asleep, and as I was falling asleep, my 10 or 11-year-old mind grasping a very important thought, wow, my dad really loves me. My dad really loves me. Now, it's funny for me to remember that now as a parent because my dad had not changed that night. This wasn't my dad's first display of love to me. He'd been showing love to me for more than a decade. He didn't change that night. This event was not his first display of love. My father had been faithfully loving me every day from the day I was born. I just didn't have eyes to see it. But in a moment of need, my dad displayed his love for me in a unique way that helped me to see him for who he really was, a loving and devoted father. But once I saw my father for the loving and devoted parent that he was, I was never the same. I never doubted his love for me after that. And knowing His love gave me security and profound gratefulness. In our passage this morning, Jesus is coming to the end of His earthly ministry. And while He has been through years in His life, in His teaching, and in His signs, been displaying who He really is, the God-man, the Word-made flesh, the Messiah of Israel... Not many people have eyes to see him for who he really is, or true faith to believe in him. As we consider Christ this morning, turn with me to the book of John, the New Testament Gospel of John, chapter 12. We'll be looking at John chapter 12, verses 20 to 43. As we consider the scene here in John 12, let me help to set the stage for us. Jesus is. Beginning the Passion Week, a week that will end with his brutal execution on a cross. In chapter 11, let me describe some of the characters here. In chapter 11, Jesus has declared himself to be the resurrection and the life. And then Jesus proved it by raising his friend Lazarus from the dead, from the grave. After Lazarus had been in the grave and buried for four days, And this great miracle caused a stir as it happened just before the Feast of Passover. Now, Passover was the time of year when crowds descended on Jerusalem to remember how God had freed His people from slavery in Egypt and made a way for them to be redeemed for death and judgment to pass over those homes that had blood sprinkled on the doorposts that were covered by the sacrifice of a lamb. So this is... Jesus now. Now another set of characters are the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders here are angry because Jesus at this time is very popular with the crowds which makes them envious. They are insecure leaders and they care a lot about what the people think of them. They crave attention and power and so the religious leaders are so angry at Jesus they're planning to kill him. You can see that in chapter 11 verses 45 to 57. They want to be rid of the competition and to be sure that their leadership was not called into question by the Roman authorities. And so they don't stop there in their planning. They even consider killing Lazarus too, the one that Jesus had raised from the dead in order to be rid of the evidence of his miracles. Imagine how ironic this is. Jesus has the power to raise someone from the grave back to life. And rather than considering who this person is that has that power, what is their plan? To kill the man that he brought back to life. It just shows how blind and foolish sin can make us. That's the religious leaders. Now, Jesus' followers at this time in Jesus' ministry are now being divided. And a great divide is taking place between his true disciples and the Jewish crowds that were following him. Now, the Jewish crowds are entertained by Jesus' signs. They're intrigued by his powerful preaching. But their interest in Jesus will not last. While they're interested in him for his miracles, and intrigued by his mysterious teaching, it will be clear that they are really interested in Jesus for their own plans and purposes. They wanted a Messiah, yes... But what they really wanted was a political Messiah, a king like David who would lead them in victory over the Roman Empire, the oppressing, occupying power, oppressing the Jews. Now, when Jesus didn't turn out to be the political Messiah that fit their agenda, they would quickly turn on him. He had just come into Jerusalem with his triumphal entry, and they go from singing his praises, Hosanna in the highest, to less than a week later, crying out, demanding Pilate, crucify him. Crucify him. Even crying out, we have no king but Caesar. So while the Jewish crowds are rejecting Jesus, John highlights for us at the beginning of our passage that the Greeks, the Gentiles who were at the feast, begin seeking Jesus. And our passage highlights that while Jesus' own people are rejecting him, His plan all along was to be a savior for the world, for all people without distinction, for people from every tongue and tribe and nation, for any that would believe in him. This is how John describes Jesus earlier in the book in the prologue in chapter one. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to any who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become Children of God. With that background, follow with me as I read through this passage. John 12, verses 20 to 43. This is God's Word. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, Jesus. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, He departed and hid Himself from them. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. As we consider this passage this morning, there's many things we could say and much here. But I want to draw out two themes for us, and these will be our points this morning. These themes will be woven through the text. Theme number one, the glorious Christ, the glorious Christ. And theme number two, the true disciple, the true disciple. If you're taking notes, our our main point this morning is simple. True disciples see Jesus' glory true disciples see Jesus' glory and follow Him wherever He leads, and follow Him wherever He leads. I pray that this morning we would see the glory of our Savior and that we would believe in Him, but also that we would see the call of discipleship, count the cost, and follow Christ. Let's begin with theme number one, the glorious Christ. Notice the Greeks at the feast begin seeking Jesus. Look with me at verse 21. Perhaps they approached Philip because he had a Greek name or because of his heritage in Bethsaida, which was towards the north of Israel, closer to the Gentile areas such as the Decapolis. Look at their request to Philip in verse 21. We wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. What a simple yet profound desire. John wants us to see that while the Jews do not have eyes to recognize their own Messiah, it is the Gentiles who desire to see Jesus. The text doesn't tell us if they were able to meet with Jesus. However, their arrival and request seems to cause Jesus to reflect on the purpose of His coming. And so he responds in verse 23 by teaching again and declaring, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This title, Son of Man, is one that Jesus uses of Himself in connection with both His suffering as well as His exaltation, which would come after. The hour that He refers to, D.A. Carson puts it this way, this hour was the appointed time of Jesus' death, His resurrection, and His exaltation. In short, His glorification. Jesus says that now is the time for Him to be glorified. And it becomes clear that he has in mind not only his death on the cross, but also his resurrection and his ascension to heaven, which would follow, where he would sit on his throne at the right hand of the Father in glory. Jesus being lifted up on the cross is the first step in the process of his eventual glorification in heaven. He would be glorified through the suffering of the cross. But it's also the most important part of his glorification. For apart from his obedience in death, there would be no resurrection and ascension. And as counterintuitive as it may seem to us, it is on the cross that Christ's glory is most fully displayed. And how is it displayed? Well, look there at verse 24. Through his sacrificial death on the cross, he says in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He uses this image, this metaphor to explain what he is about to do in his sacrificial death for sinners like us. You see, brothers and sisters, it is here at the cross that we see all of Christ's wonderful attributes and character on display at the same time in this singular historical moment, Jesus on the cross, we see His love, His mercy, God's justice, Christ's humility, His patience, His perfect holiness, His grace, and God's sovereignty displayed all at once. It is at the cross where we most clearly see Christ in all of His splendor, and God in all of His glory. At the cross, not only does Christ's glorification begin, but it also reaches its height and climax. I remember, as a younger man, um, dating my wife, Bev, and considering marriage. About 10 years ago, I, I remember visiting jewelry stores and looking for diamonds and rings. And I remember, as I looked at such diamonds, visiting many stores, and I remember all of the jewelers doing basically the same thing. They would stretch out a piece of black velvet there on the counter and they would pour out diamonds and allow me to see them with a black background. It was with that black background that I was able to see the beauty of a diamond and all of its brilliance. With that black background, that diamond could be seen most clearly as all of the light bounced through all of the the beautiful sides and cuts. As you consider Christ's beauty and glory, do you realize that it is the black background of the ugliness of the the cross where Christ's beauty is on display for us to see? The cross displays the manifold glories of Christ. Christ as He suffers in our place, as He approaches the gory death of a sacrifice as a criminal on the cross. It is at the cross where we're able to see the beauties of Christ most clearly. We saw in Isaiah 53 that the beauty of Christ was not His physical beauty. He had no physical beauty that would draw us to Him. What we see here is in this passage, as Jesus talks about what he is about to do, that the, the glory of Christ is in his wonderful character of who he is as God become man. Let's look at just a few of his attributes that are on display at the cross from this passage. Look, first of all, at the love of Christ. We can see this in verse 24. Christ's love is on display at the cross as His love compelled Him to come to leave the glories of heaven to lay down His life in sacrifice for sinners like us in order to bring many sinners to salvation. Look at verse 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The love of Christ is on display at the cross. Look at a second attribute of Christ. Look at His mercy. Look at verses 32 and 33. Jesus came to show mercy to a world of sinners who had rebelled against Him. He came to show unmerited kindness to the worst of sinners. Look at verse 32. He talks about being lifted up from the earth and drawing all people to Himself. He said this to show by what kind of death He was going to die. Christ went to the cross to save not good people or kind people, but to save His enemies and to make His enemies His friends. But look also, thirdly, at the justice of God on display at the cross. Jesus came to prove that God is just, that He does not excuse disobedience, or leave sin unpunished. God is not a corrupt judge or a grandfatherly figure who will wink at sin. No, in His death, Jesus took upon Himself the wrath that sinners deserve. You and I have sinned. And our sins demand the just wrath of God. You and I have sinned. And Christ drank the full cup of God's wrath, drinking every last drop so that His people would be spared God's judgment and condemnation. Hear how troubled Jesus is in verse 27 as He faces the prospect of taking on the punishment of sinners. Look at Him crying out, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. The justice of God is on display at the cross. But fourthly, look at the humility of Christ. Look at the humility of Christ on display. Jesus humbled Himself. Not just in taking on our humanity, though certainly in that. In the incarnation, Jesus, who was fully God, took upon Himself our human nature, forever uniting God and man in His person, adopting the form of a servant. Jesus left heaven, not just to dwell with us for a time, but to become one of us through the virgin birth. And not only did Jesus... Humble himself by taking on our humanity, but becoming weak and poor, and humbling himself even to death. And not any death, but dying the most humiliating death death on a cross. The cross was invented to be a display of humiliation and torture. And Jesus says in verse 32 that He is going to be lifted up on a cross to draw all people to Himself. Not only do we see His humility, look at, fifthly, His patience. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, is a long-suffering and patient Savior, patiently enduring rejection by mankind, rejection by His own people, the people that He had come to save. He patiently endured being misunderstood, being mistreated, being abused and tortured by the very ones he came to save. look at verse 37. Look at the patience of Christ, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Not only this, sixthly, look at the obedience of Christ. See this in verse 28. He obeyed his heavenly Father. He came to glorify. His Father, He obeyed perfectly even when His Father led Him to the cross. Jesus was the obedient Son praying till the end, not My will, but Yours be done. I could go on and on about the wonderful attributes of Christ on display at the cross. And even here in this passage as Jesus talks about the cross. He is the perfect mediator, the son of man, the one who perfectly is able to represent us to God. He is the perfect sacrifice, the lamb who came to take away the sin of the world. He is also the great high priest who presents this perfect sacrifice to God and sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. And He is also a triumphing king, triumphing in his death over sin and the power of the evil one as you see in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. As we consider the glories of Christ, let me encourage you, Christian, to make it your regular practice to meditate deeply on the cross of Christ. Let me encourage you, Christian, to make this a daily practice. First of all, by... Meditating on the glory of Christ at the cross, you will glorify God. Remember that we will do this for all eternity. This is what the saints in the book of Revelation are crying out Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and crying out, crying out praise to the Lamb of God who sits on the throne. Reflecting and meditating deeply on. Christ glorifies God. But it is also good for us. As we meditate on Christ, we will be encouraged because in Christ and at the cross of Christ, there is a balm for every wound, a comfort for every pain, and an answer to every searching question. Do you realize, Christian, that the health of your eternal soul depends on this act of worship? this discipline of meditating on the cross of Christ, do you know that this will lend itself to your spiritual nourishment day in and day out? Let me encourage you, Christian, even as you consider your sin and are daily repenting and confessing your sin, to always be looking to Christ, the One, the only One who takes your sin away. The Puritan pastor John Owen wrote a wonderful work called The Glory of Christ. It's often neglected and many read John Owen for his works about sin and about the mortification of sin. But I love his little work, The Glory of Christ. He says this in his introduction. That his purpose in this discourse is to declare some part of that glory of our Lord Jesus Christ which is revealed in the Scripture and is proposed as the principal object of our faith, love, delight, and admiration. And he says this about the glory of Christ That this, the glory of Christ, deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and our utmost diligence in them. And Owen is encouraging his readers to consider the glory of Christ as it spills out on all of the pages of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. And he says this about our reflection and meditation on the glory of Christ. He says, if our future blessedness, or happiness in heaven will consist in being where He is and beholding His glory, what better preparation can there be for it than in a constant previous contemplation of that glory in the revelation that is made in the Gospel? Unto this very end or unto this very purpose. What is the purpose of meditating and beholding Christ in Scripture? That by a view of it, by seeing the glory of Christ, we may be gradually transformed into the same glory. Do you get what he's saying? That as we look to Christ, that as we behold Him in all of His glory, as we see Him in Scripture and meditate on Him, we will become like Him. We will be changed from one degree of glory to another. As John says, will ultimately happen in 1 John. When we see Him, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. This process begins even now as we behold Him by reading our Bibles and seeing Christ, meditating on Him and giving Him glory now. We will be made more and more like Him with each passing day. I wonder, Christian, what keeps you from meditating on the glories of Christ? What is it that is occupying your attention? What beauties have drawn your attention? What are the things that draw your eyes? What are the things that draw your mind's eye? What is it that you think about when you have time to think about anything? Let me encourage you, Christian, to meditate on the glories of Christ. I wonder, too, how many of you are experiencing something of what Christ had had gone through at the cross. I wonder how many of you, even today, are feeling misunderstood or mistreated, are experiencing pain and hurt. Let me encourage you to look to, the, to look to the cross of Christ, to look to your Savior, Jesus, and be reminded of His great love for you at the cross and be encouraged to be able to follow in His footsteps in being misunderstood and mistreated in this life and delighting in it that you are counted worthy to suffer something of what Christ experienced. I, I love Mother's Day. I love honoring my own mother, my mother-in-law, i love even more honoring my wife. I'd love to encourage you mothers this morning on Mother's Day to consider your own motherhood. Are you encouraged this morning in your motherhood? Are your kids like me as a 10 or 11-year-old finally realizing all that you go through as a mother day in and day out? It's often a thankless job. Or are you discouraged this morning as you consider those daily labors that are often neglected or that for you, no one draws attention to? Are you feeling discouraged this morning? Let me encourage you, mothers. Look to Christ. Be reminded of Christ. Are you feeling unappreciated? Do you know that your hope and happiness will not be in finally helping people realize how how much you do, but actually in focusing on your Savior Jesus, seeing his thankless love for you at the cross, seeing him being misunderstood and mistreated, seeing his love for you and being changed by that love, and then being able to imitate his love as you follow him as a faithful disciple. Let me encourage you mothers to reflect on Christ. I wonder if you're here and you're not a Christian. I wonder if you have not yet seen Jesus for who He really is. One Baptist pastor, J.L. Reynolds, wrote this about Christ and how He was misunderstood and mistreated at the cross. He says this, when Jesus uttered in the judgment hall of Pilate the remarkable words, I am a king, He pronounced a sentiment Fraught with unspeakable dignity and power, his enemies would deride his pretensions and express their mockery of his claim by presenting him with a crown of thorns, a reed and a purple robe and nailing him to the cross. But in the eyes of unfallen intelligences, he was a king. A higher power presided over that derisive ceremony and converted it into a real coronation. That crown of thorns was indeed a diadem of empire. That purple robe was the badge of royalty. That fragile reed was the symbol of unbounded power. And that cross, the throne of dominion which shall never end. Jesus, as he went to the cross, was misunderstood He was mistreated and mocked for calling himself a king. But do you realize he was a king? Whether you recognize it or not, he is the king. If you're here and you're not a Christian, let me encourage you, my friend. Ask God to give you eyes to see Jesus for who he really is and all of his glory and faith to believe in him. That's theme number one the glorious Christ. Leads us to theme number two. The true disciple, the true disciple. The other theme of this passage is that of the true disciple of Christ. We see in this text the glory of Christ and his submission to death for our sins, but we also see him glorified as his followers hear his call, take up their own cross, and follow him. We see a portrait, a picture here of the true disciple in two ways. One, we see it by hearing Jesus' call to discipleship in verses 25 and 26. But we also see it in verse 2 by observing the opposite, the false disciples at the end of our passage in verses 37 to 43. As we consider now this portrait of the true disciple, let's begin by looking at Jesus' call to discipleship in verses 25 and 26. Now in verse 24... Jesus had explained the grain of wheat illustration of how he was going to die in order to bring forth much fruit through his death. This beautiful metaphor of how Jesus' death is necessary to bring life to sinners like us. But he immediately follows this metaphor and illustration of his own death by turning to challenge his disciples to follow him on his crossbound path, to follow him to death. Look at his call to discipleship in verse 25 and 26. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's look first at verse 25. He, can, he calls his disciple to... Con- to consider whether they would love their own life in this world or whether they would love the next. But he uses strong language. He says that those that would be his disciple must hate their lives in this life. Now what does that mean? What does he mean by they must hate their lives? Well, at the very least, it means that they're going to act as if this life was not everything. Everything. Which is the opposite of what we naturally do. We live as if this life, as if this life is everything. What Jesus says is, we need to act as if this life is small in comparison with the next, and have eyes so focused on the next, it looks like we're neglecting our own good in this life. Christ, out of love for his Father, made decisions that looked like he hated his own life. He surrendered himself. He gave up His life in sacrifice for us. He willingly went to the cross. It looked like He hated His life. But His act of self-sacrifice only makes sense in light of eternity and the next life which is to come, that next life which is forever, and that next life in which all of His people will be gathered with Him forever. And as He considered that next life, It caused him to make decisions that seemed bizarre in the eyes of this world. And he calls those that would be truly his disciples to follow his example and do the same. Now let me make this clear. There are many that have attempted to follow Jesus and to imitate Jesus. If you're not a Christian, do not begin by attempting to imitate Christ. Begin by repenting of ever being able to be good enough to earn your salvation by imitating Christ. Many have attempted to imitate Him in order to earn their salvation. You can never do that. But those of us that have repented of our sins and trusted in Christ and been converted, been brought from death to life, we are now called to follow our Savior, to take up our cross, to die to ourselves and follow Him, and even being willing to die for Him if He asks it of us. In verse 26, Jesus will say that anyone that serves Christ must follow him and follow him on a cross-bound path. Now what he's saying here is to follow Christ will have costs. There is a cost of discipleship. There are costs to following Christ and obeying him wherever he leads and whatever he asks of us. Now, there are benefits as well. As you consider discipleship, there are costs and there are benefits. But realize we cannot do a worldly cost-benefit analysis in following Christ. We must realize that though there are unspeakable benefits, most of those benefits are there for us in the next life. There are very serious costs to following Christ, and it may cost you everything in this life. I wonder, as you have considered the cost of following Christ, whether you have evaluated it to be worth it. Do you know that there may come a day when Christ asks you something that will be incredibly difficult for you to give? He may ask something of you that seems as if He's going to take everything away from you. Let me encourage you, Christian, to remember it will be worth it, whatever He asks of you. When you stand before Him on that last day, you will not be ashamed of anything that He asks of you, anything that He took from you in this life. It will be worth it. But at the same time, let me encourage you, Christian, even as you share the Gospel with others, to remember to not only hold out the benefits of Christ, but to even share with non-Christians the costs that will come in following Christ. I remember my wife, Sharing the gospel with a a young Japanese girl while we were living in Dubai. This girl had been attending church and seemed very interested in Christianity. And she agreed to meet up with, with my wife and a couple of the other ladies of the church to do a Bible study through the book of Mark. And as they went through the book of Mark, she was dutiful in reading the book of Mark. She read it several times through. Before they even met the first time, she'd read the whole thing when she was only asked to read the first few chapters. But at the end of that six week study of Christianity Explained, she realized that if she were to follow Christ, that it would mean having to give up her relationship with her parents. She realized that according to Japanese culture, to, re- to, to embrace Christ would mean to reject the Shintoism of her parents and that in her culture, it would be a slap in the face to her parents. It would be declaring you mom and dad are wrong and I reject what you've taught me. And she got to the end of that study, and she said, this costs too much. I can't do it. What became clear to her was the cost of following Christ. She said, well, maybe someday I will consider this again, but right now this is too costly. Do you know that as you share the gospel with others, you must be able to not only hold out the wonderful benefits that there are in trusting in Christ, but also to hold out to your listeners, the cost as well. That they must be willing to take up their cross and follow Christ. Look here at verses 37 to 41. We now see the response of some of these followers. We see this picture of a true disciple shown not only by what Christ is calling them to do, but by the response of some of these followers in verses 37 to 41. Let's read this again. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and harden their heart, lest they see with their eyes, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. You see here the first reaction of some of these followers. Some of them, they reject Christ outright. Some of them, they see the signs and the wonders, but it didn't lead them to true saving faith. I wonder if you've thought to yourself, if I could just see a great miracle, if I could just see a great sign, then I would believe. Or maybe you thought, if I could just show a miracle to some of my unbelieving friends and family, then, then they would believe. Then they would follow Christ. Do you see here that that isn't true? Do you see how many here among the crowd that saw Jesus do great signs and wonders, saw him raise a dead man to life, and yet still they walked away from him? There's a lot going on here. We see God's sovereignty being talked about. We see human responsibility being held out. I don't have time in my remaining minutes to solve the, all of the, the issues of God's sovereignty and human responsibility for you. In fact, if I had a lot more time, I'm not sure that I could solve them all for you. But I can say this in this passage and in so many other passages in Scripture, both God's sovereignty over everything, including who it is that is saved, Is held out, but also human responsibility, our responsibility for our decisions, and especially for our sin is also held out. It's clear from Scripture that the natural reaction of fallen humanity when we see God and God's glory displayed, our natural reaction is to reject Him. You think of Pharaoh in in the Old Testament. God shows up and says, yes, yes, yes. You're a great king, but I'm greater. Yes, 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 you have interesting gods. You know what? I'm the only God. How does Pharaoh respond to this? Does he fall down and worship? No, he hardens his heart and he fights against God. Plague after plague comes, showing God's power. And what does Pharaoh do? He hardens his heart time and time again until the very end, until he's destroyed in the Red Sea. The natural reaction of human hearts is to reject God when we see His glory displayed. So we see that the first reaction of some of these disciples. Some of them reject Him outright and dismiss Him in unbelief. But there's another category. Look at verses 42 and 43. There's a second category of rejection. But it is an interesting one. Look at what He says in verse 42 and 43. John says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. What is he saying? He's saying that there were some, even among the religious leaders, that believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was who he said he was, the Messiah of Israel. They had some eyes to see this man must be the Messiah because of all the signs that he did. But did it cause them? To believe in Him and to follow Him? To confess Him before men? No, they had something greater in their minds and hearts. You see it there? For fear of the Pharisees, they would not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Why? For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see, fear of man dominated them. A desire for their comfort in this world dominated them desire to be accepted by family members, a desire to be accepted by society, led them to reject the Messiah of Israel that God had sent to save them so that they would have good standing in society. Can you believe it? I think it's easy for us to say that if we were there, that we would have claimed Christ and declared to be his follower and followed him wherever he led. But you know, even Jesus' own disciples, when Jesus was being crucified, they ran and fled for fear of men. I wonder, as you consider your own discipleship, your own following after Christ, what does it look like? Not just when you're here on a, on a Sunday or, or hanging out with your Christian friends. How is your discipleship and following after Christ when you have to confess Christ before men? When you have to have those awkward conversations about the things that you believe at work or among your unbelieving family. Are you willing to confess Christ when it's awkward, when it's hard, when it's politically incorrect to declare the things that Jesus says is true about ourselves, about our sin? I think these reactions, the the two reactions that we see here should cause all of us to ask, am I a true disciple? Am I one that is willing to follow Christ by taking up my cross and following Him? Do you realize that there are some that you know even now who are calling themselves Christians who will be like some of the people here in the crowd who were willing to follow Jesus for a time, for a season, until that moment when it became too hard and then they will walk away. Look around. There may be some even among us today who you think are true disciples of Christ, that one day Christ may ask something of them and they will say, I will follow Jesus this far, but no more. Not if he asks this of me. I think many of us think that we would be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice, to die for Christ, if he asked it of us. Often we have puffed up notions of of our own abilities. We have glorified notions of being able to stand there, and if someone asks us, are you a follower of Christ, you would be able to declare, yes, I am, even if it meant your death. But I wonder, when it comes to your discipleship, if you are willing to follow Christ in the much smaller ways that he's asking you to follow him in today, the more inconvenient or awkward ones that he's asking you to do today. I wonder how you will be prepared. If God does ask it of you, if Christ does ask you to follow him by making that ultimate sacrifice, will you be ready? What is it that would prepare you one day to be able to make that ultimate sacrifice? Do you think you'll be able to just show up that day and be ready for it if he asks that ultimate cost? Not if you're not training for that day today. Do you know that you can train for a day in which Christ may ask you to lay down your life for him? As a martyr, it may come to some of us. Are you training yourself today to be ready for that ultimate test? Uh, one, of, one of my fellow elders at uh, Redeemer in Dubai, Daniel Moundu, is a, a Kenyan man, and he used to use this illustration of how these Kenyan runners win all of the marathons. And many, many scientists physiologists are trying to figure out, why is it the Kenyans that win all of these marathons? Why is it that they show up at every marathon, and it seems like there's always one or two or three Kenyans at the beginning, whether it's men or women? Why are the Kenyans winning? And they've tried to figure it out. Is it their physiology? Is it their genetics? Is it that this tribe of Kenyans that always wins, is it because they live in a higher altitude? Well, some of those things may be factors. But what Daniel would always explain is, regardless of those factors, if you go and see these marathon runners, what you'll see is seven days a week, they wake up early in the morning and they train. They train seven days a week, every day. They're out there running. How are they ready for that ultimate test of the marathon? They're not sitting around on the couch eating potato chips every day. They are out there training and running. How are they ready for the ultimate test of running that marathon and winning it? They train daily for it. Let me encourage you, Christian, as you consider what it is that Christ may ask of you in this life as his disciple, as he asks you to take up up your cross and follow him, to be training even today for that ultimate test, if it comes, by being faithful in much smaller things that he asks of you by being willing to get off the couch and be a faithful husband to your wife, by willing to to have those awkward times of discipleship with your children, reading the Bible to them, doing catechism with them, helping them to understand who they are as people that were born in God's universe. Perhaps raising those awkward conversations with your family or friends or coworkers and talking with them about Christ and evangelizing them. There are many small things that you can do today that will be training you to grow in your discipleship in in Christ. But let me encourage you, Christian, that whatever it is that Christ asks of you in following Him, that you will be able to say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, 7, and 8, on that last day when you stand before Christ, whatever He asks of you, in terms of the cost that it may take in this life, You'll be able to say with Paul, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, as trash, in order that I may gain Christ. What you'll find is as you begin to delight in Christ and to follow him, the things even that it costs you, you will be able to reject and say, it was as if I gave up nothing. You'll be able to declare with missionaries like David Livingston, I never made a sacrifice. Or as Jim Elliott put it, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. There's a a wonderful promise in the book of Mark chapter 10. I'll, I'll finish with this. In the book of Mark, chapter 10, we see Jesus, having just spoken with the rich young ruler, seeing this man being asked to give up his possessions and to sell them to follow Christ. And he walks away discouraged because he doesn't want to give up his possessions. And then he makes the declaration that it's difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And Peter seems to get excited and says, well, look, Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. All of a sudden Peter is excited that he's poor. I think before he was a bit insecure about it. And Jesus tells him this sweet promise. Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left behind house or brothers. This is Mark 10:29. Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. What is Jesus promising? Well, He's telling His disciples it may cost you everything. It may cost you family. It may cost you houses. It may cost you possessions. But don't worry. You're going to get back even more now in this life more than you ever left behind. And what does he mean by that? I don't think this promise made sense to me until my wife and I moved our family across the world and began to live overseas. I remember early on asking all of these questions as we considered moving to to do ministry in the Middle East. What's it going to cost us? How hard is it going to be? What is Christ asking for us to give up in order to go and to do ministry overseas? What we didn't realize until we were there for some years was how much it was going to benefit us to go. You see that you get back houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. What does Jesus mean by this? How do you get back mothers and fathers? Well, in the church. As you follow Christ and are willing, perhaps even to reject family to follow Christ, God is going to give you back. Christ will give you back family in this life that will be deeper and richer than any physical family relationship that you had beforehand. You will find in the church spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers, spiritual brothers and spiritual sisters, spiritual children that will fill up your heart and your soul so that when you look back, you will say, I gave up nothing and I received everything. As we recently moved away from Dubai to come back to the States, it was much more difficult for us to say all of those goodbyes to the people that we had invested in over six years and the people that had become for us family. It was so much harder to leave and say goodbye to them to come back than it ever was for us to leave and to go there. So let me encourage you, Christian, whatever it is that Christ may ask of you, he is going to fill up your heart and soul with so many good things that you will be able to say on that last day, I gave up nothing. I gained everything. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for these moments that we've had to consider a bit of the glory of Christ and to remember again what it means to be a true disciple of Christ. We pray that as we consider these things, that you, by your Spirit, would be applying these things to our own hearts, that we would be growing in our love for our beautiful Savior, and being changed into his image with each passing day. We pray that we would have hearts to be willing to follow Christ wherever he leads and be the kinds of disciples that take up our cross and follow him, knowing that in the end it will be worth it when we stand around your throne and give you glory forever. Even so come, Lord Jesus. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.